Hey out there, everyone, and thank you for joining me for episode 22 of the Mark Guy Show. Uh, this one is going to be a bit more of a grab bag. Sometimes I see news articles out there that make me think of something I've done in my life or you know decisions I've made, and I feel like I can talk about those things more honestly, and I probably have more insight on those things than I would otherwise, uh, just due to my own personal experiences and and due to what people I know have done. So I read Zero Hedge quite often. It's one place I like to go. I know that it's bearish. I know I probably tend to lean bearish as well, but they do a great job of compiling a lot of what's going on, what's going on out there and trends that are going on in the news. And yes, just like with any site, just like with any source, you have to look at what are their biases and try to sort through those. But they had an article up there today, uh, November 3rd, about Americans fleeing expensive metro areas and fleeing those areas in search of affordability and finding affordability in the South and in the Midwest and you know more in the what you tend to think of as cheaper states, lower tax states. And the reason why this stood out to me is because that's what I did. I, mean, I grew up in western New York. I went to school in New York. I went to uh, school near Rochester, New York, and then Syracuse University in Syracuse, New York, both, you know, in, in the western and central New York area and all in New York State, which is one of the most heavily taxed states in the country. And an area, you know, obviously, Buffalo, Rochester, Syracuse is far different from the New York City metro area. It's been, it's part of that rust belt that includes Pittsburgh, Cleveland, you know, over to Detroit, uh, Toledo, you know, that group of Great Lakes cities that has really struggled due to manufacturing jobs, either moving out to the Midwest or down South, similarly to cheaper areas. Uh, that rust belt has really struggled. And then when you combine that with a high tax burden, it's really difficult for people to get by and jobs are hard to come by. And so a lot of people end up leaving. And that's one of the reasons why you see I'm a big Buffalo sports fan, big Bills fan, uh, big Sabres fan, but everywhere that those teams go, there's a big Buffalo influence here. And Buffalo is not a big city. You know, the metro area is a million, you know, a million and change people. Uh, the suburbs have a decent number of people. The city itself is, I believe, 300-something thousand. Uh, but it's not a big area. It's not a big television market. And it's one of the smaller markets in professional sports. But you see Sabres and Bills fans everywhere that those teams go. And yeah, not all of those people are originally from Buffalo. I'm sure a lot of them you know, married people from Buffalo, became Buffalo sports fans. A lot of them, maybe their parents were from Buffalo, or maybe they have some other connection. A lot of people probably became Bills fans during the 90s. They were the team to like, you know, them and the Cowboys because they were good. You know, they were consistently good. They were really fun to watch. So that was probably part of it as well. But it's not like the Bills or Sabres have given a lot of reasons for anybody to jump on the bandwagon for them recently. You know, the Sabres have just come off of two last-place finishes in the NHL, and the Bills haven't made the playoffs for 16 years, and it looks like now it's going to be 17 years. So it's not like 
these are franchises you want to hop right on board with and become fans of. But you notice that in sports, and I think that's a good representation of how people from that area are spread out all over the country. And you especially see the presence felt in the South. So in Florida, you know, when the Sabres play the Panthers and the Lightning, so that's in uh, the Miami area and the Tampa Bay area, there's a heavy concentration of Buffalo fans down there when they play out in the Southwest. So whether it's in Phoenix or in Denver, there's a pretty good concentration out there. The California teams as well. That's where you see the most concentration. So the South East, the Southwest, I uh, see a lot in Texas as well. You know, when they play Dallas uh, and I'm just using that as a representation of people from that area being spread out but that's that's what's happening and I'm seeing that happening with friends of mine that I you know that I've graduated with that I grew up with a lot of us are moving to other places because it's difficult to find quality jobs in the area not that it's impossible I know a lot of people that have found good jobs in the area and there were jobs available to me personally in the area I could have found a job, but I think I found a better one elsewhere. So that's why I moved and I found a a job in a state with far better taxes, you know, for my particular situation. The cost of living is pretty similar. For me, it wasn't necessarily chasing affordability. Um, I think the lower tax rate in North Dakota, the state tax rate versus New York State helped, and I think... It's part of the decision, but probably in Fargo, where I live, the cost of living here is actually higher than it would have been in Buffalo or Syracuse, which were the two cities I was primarily looking for work in New York. I did not want to go to New York City, but I think I embody this pretty well. Of course, I'm not moving from a major metro area to a lower cost of living area, but those are kind of my two alternatives. You know, it was either... Yes, I could find a job in, in Buffalo, Rochester, Syracuse, somewhere in that corridor. Or, like so many people that I went to school with, I could move to New York City, which I grew up about seven hours from, so it's not like it's close to home. But that's where a lot of you know, a lot of people came from New Jersey and Long Island and from, you know, the New York Metro up to school upstate in western New York and I could have gone that route and gone to New York City. I didn't want to, though. I think because of the trends that this article lays out. And so I'm going to I'm gonna post it for people to be able to view themselves. But basically what the article shows is that migration in New York State as a whole, so it includes where I'm from. It also shows New York City. That's more what the article is focusing on because it's looking at large metro areas. So New York and San Francisco and there's negative mig- uh, there's migration away from that area and from uh, California pretty much as a whole, especially Southern California, migration away from those areas. And then you see mostly positive migration to a lot of the southeast, you know southwest, the and the Midwest. And you know I moved out to the upper Midwest out to North Dakota. North Dakota has pretty much positive migration across the board, and the county that I moved to is one of the most positive 
in the entire country. This is from 2010 to 2014, so it's not quite up to today. And I, I will say about North Dakota, due to falling oil prices, things have slowed down out here. So it's not quite as stark as this would have you believe. But the same trends do hold true. And I think as Americans, as people are getting stretched more and more in terms of paying higher costs for education, if you want to pay for your kids to go to college, you you could be paying out forty to $50,000 a year. And it's going up faster than the, the rate of inflation every year. Your health insurance premiums are going up every year. Your tax burden is going up every year as governments finance more and more generous pension systems that are generally more and more underfunded every year that we go. Um, plus, they're expanding government. So just your tax burden as a whole is going up. People are getting squeezed thin and they're trying to find out ways to save money. And yes, there are a lot of things you can do to cut to cut corners and to figure out, okay, how can I save costs in my household? There are a lot of things you can do. You can drive a cheaper car. You can try to go from having two cars to having one car. Uh, you can move to a smaller place. But one of the biggest things you can do, and that's, that probably makes the biggest impact, is you can look at other cities. You can look at other parts of the country. Where can I live where I can make a huge change to my cost of living and you know, be able to add $10,000 a year to whatever we want to do with it, whether, whether we want to put it away for the kids' college or whether we want to be able to buy a, a bigger, more expensive house or whether we want to be able to sock that away for our retirement. You know, whatever it is that, that you're trying to do and what people are do is or what people are doing is they're realizing there are these parts of the country where there are jobs available, there's work available, and where the cost of living is lower than in these large metro areas. And for me, the big reason why I didn't want to move to a large metro area, the number one reason, and it's the reason why I, I do a lot of the things that I do or don't do a lot of the things that I do is because of the cost. And I think it's asinine to pay the price that a lot of people are willing to pay to be in these large metro areas. And I think they're willing to pay so much because of what it has to offer. Obviously, some people make that calculation and it's worth it to them. They want to be able to walk down the street and have 15 different bars to choose from and to be able to get anything they want at any given hour of the day. And I, I understand the benefit of that. And I place some value on that, I suppose, but not nearly enough value to be able to pay the types of prices that people are willing to pay to live in New York City, for example, or to live in San Francisco. Some people do it because they want to be around the best and the brightest and they think that that's where the best and the brightest always ends up or in those large cities and they also want to be close to business and personal contacts so there you know there are a lot more opportunities to meet people on a personal level and to meet people on a business level when you're just living around more people so that's part of it too so i understand why people are willing to pay a premium it wasn't for me i don't place enough value on those things to be willing to do it and in fact, I, you know, a lot of the aspects of a large city, I actually, you know, place a cost on. I think I would be willing to pay less to live there than I would in a lot of smaller cities because I think smaller cities have what I need, you know, enough. You know, I don't want to necessarily live in the absolute middle of nowhere where I've got to drive an hour to, to do grocery shopping. I don't necessarily want that. I want to have access to, to a job 
that I can commute easily to, have a short commute. So I place some value on being at least around other people. But to be that tightly compacted, I, I've never wanted to do that. And I think a lot of people are also coming to that realization themselves. They like having space. That's part of human instinct. I don't think it's natural for most of us to be cooped up in a, a small apartment where every time we go anywhere we feel crowded and you know it's constantly you're feeling stressed due to that. At least that's how I feel. And I know a lot of other people feel that way. They want to be able to have a yard for their kids to run in. They want to be able to park their car without having any stress. All of these things people place value on and maybe they're willing to take a job making slightly less money and they're willing to give up some of the perks of living in a big city like I said being able to have have hundreds of different places to eat to choose from and bars to choose from and public transit to get you anywhere you give up a lot of those things to be able to live in an area where you have space and space is so valuable that I think that in and of itself almost makes it worth that trade-off. But I think the bigger part of it, like I said, the the big reason why I I wouldn't want to live there is because of the cost. That's why people are moving because the rate of increase in the cost of living in these large metro areas has accelerated. Uh, If you look in terms of housing, uh, what the San Francisco housing market has done, the New York City housing market has done, really California as a whole is it that bubble is really reinflated out there. And they also have a chart in this article looking at uh, mortgage payments, monthly mortgage payments as a percentage of income. And San Francisco's is at 52%. And then San Jose, Los Angeles, Orange County, Oakland, San Diego, and Ventura County round out seven of the top eight. So the only non-California city in that top eight is Honolulu. And all of them are 30.9% or higher, and they range up to San Francisco as being at 52%. And I, that's just pretty wild. I mean, the next city down the list is New York, which I think of as being an insanely high cost housing market. And it's at 29.9%. Uh, this this metric. The Miami is next at 27%. They list the top 10. But think about when you're when you're committing that much of your income to housing in a given month, how much else can you really do? When everything that I said before is happening to people living in these cities, you know, your tax burden is increasing. And even not even not even taking state and city taxes into account, your federal tax burden is ramping up. But then when you live in California or New York, your state and local income taxes are almost certainly ramping up quickly as well. So now you're being squeezed on that end, being squeezed on the healthcare end if you have kids, or maybe you're paying back student loans. You're being squeezed on that end as well because it's if if you recently graduated college is more expensive now than ever has been before and it's been increasing far faster than the rate of inflation recently or if you're trying to send your kids to college now and you want to help them or pay entirely for them you're paying more now than ever for the you know for the same reasons so you're being squeezed in all these different directions and how how much can you really get ahead 
when housing takes up this large of a chunk. They also have a table in here. I talked about tax rates. Uh, they sh it shows the U.S. as a whole, color codes it, where are the highest tax rates, where are the lowest tax rates. The highest are in California, New York, Minnesota, uh, Oregon, and, uh, and Iowa. And then uh, D.C. is up there on that list as well, and New Jersey. Also, it looks like uh, yeah, Vermont is right up there as well. So pretty much concentrated on the West Coast and in the Northeast. And the lowest tax areas, obviously no state income tax, Florida, Texas, South Dakota, Wyoming, uh, Nevada, Washington, Washington State, not Washington, D.C. Uh, and then just looking at the colors too, really the low tax areas are concentrated in the South and in the Midwest. Uh, where I live, North Dakota, it's a 2.9% uh, tax, state income tax, which is among the lowest in the country. It's, I believe, lower than everywhere except those states with, with no state income tax. But that's, that's another part of it as well. So fleeing away from high, uh, high housing costs, high state income taxes, and going to areas with lower income tax. And a big part of this too is the areas with less taxes tend to have fewer regulations and it's been a good environment for jobs to come about and there is work to be found in most of these areas. I'm not I'm saying that more as a general rule. I know there are exceptions to that fact. Uh but there's work to be found in these areas and you can be paid reasonably well due to the demand for labor because Business, business is generally doing better in these lower tax areas than in these higher cost areas. And there's a, there's a reason why New York is struggling. And it's not because of lack of talent or lack of resources or lack of land or, you know, whatever you want to say. That's not why. It's because of an oppressive state government, oppressive taxes, oppressive property taxes, in a general environment that's overregulated, and I think that's the biggest reason why New York is struggling and why people are leaving and going to these lower tax, lower regulation areas. So that plays a role too. It's kind of a double-edged sword in terms of a, a low tax area is going to draw people in and of itself because the taxes are lower, but I think the low taxes also are going to have generally all else being equal better job prospects for you than those higher tax areas. So we're seeing it on that end as well. Um, and what you're seeing is generally it's poorer people that are leaving these, these, uh, these large metro areas in search of finding work elsewhere. And you can be paid, once again, I'm going to be anecdotal about this. I know a lot of this is personal so of course it is going to be anecdotal i'm not going to have numbers to back everything up but out here in north dakota i spend a lot of time traveling around the state around the area and there's work to be found everywhere you know every every store has a help wanted sign i was just in jamestown north dakota and there was a sign for stock people at walmart for 1350 an hour starting which 
is more than I ever made up until the current job that I had. But I was making 11 something an hour just a year and a half ago. So I was never able to make that much, but I could have made that much probably when I was 16 if I lived out here. But instead, when I was back in New York, I had to hustle to find a job making minimum wage or just over minimum wage when I was that age because just the labor market was not tight. There was plentiful labor because there weren't enough jobs to go around. So it's it's completely different having grown up in, in that environment and having gone through it, gone through trying to find a job and you know even getting a job at a fast food place in certain areas was something to kind of pat yourself on the back for because you you know you beat out some other people for that job there that there weren't everywhere wasn't looking for people and yes I understand there's turnover and especially once you get a little older you should be able to to garner a job at a fast food restaurant so I'm exaggerating a bit but I remember when I was in Syracuse and I was trying to find a job to work while I was in graduate school I had to hustle to find a job and I ended up getting a job making 1075 an hour but I was already a college graduate at that point. It ended up being at nights. So I was able to work, you know, I was able to work full time at that job while at the same time going to graduate school full time. It ended up working out well. But I had to look for that job for a while. I was looking for weeks and I was applying everywhere. You know, I was applying at fast food places. I was just trying to get some money to survive because I was down to virtually nothing in terms of cash. I needed to figure out, you know, how am I going to pay my rent the next couple months? I'd gotten to that point and it was hard to find. Luckily it ended up working out for me and I dug myself out of that hole and it was enough to get me by, but that wouldn't have happened in North Dakota where I am now. And I'm assuming a lot of these other States are the same way. And I haven't spent enough time in Florida or, uh, you know, or in a lot of other areas. I, I did spend most of the summer down in Kansas city. And I think things are similar down there not quite as stark as they are in uh, in North Dakota, but there were a lot of jobs available out there as well. Kansas was kind of struggling. Kansas is an anomaly. They're they're struggling financially there, but I think Missouri generally was pretty strong too. It was certainly stronger than than I ever remember New York being in terms of just the general seeing jobs available and and you know what the starting rates were that that were being offered. So this other metric they show on here, this other table shows uh, what the age is of, of people that are leaving from these large metro areas and what the income level is. I already said it's predominantly poor people that are leaving these areas. I think it's a lot of young people like me who say graduated from college and decided, you know, the best opportunity for me is to go elsewhere. So you're seeing... The biggest outflow in terms of age coming in the 26 to 40 range. So that would lend more credence to the to the belief that it, it's people that at least have been in the workforce for a handful of years and have decided I'm not getting ahead here. Maybe I have a family now and I need to go somewhere where I can make my dollar stretch further. But in, on the income side, a majority of the people that are leaving these large metro areas are people that make $30,000 or less in a given year. So it is people predominantly struggling financially. And then it is, it tends to be vast majority of people that are not 
college graduates. So um, I think those people are having trouble more in the in the knowledge economy, especially in these higher tax areas, continuing to continuing to progress up the wage scale. And then they decide I'm able to get maybe even a raise going elsewhere where it may be cheaper for me to live and where I pay less in taxes. So it's kind of a no-brainer at that point to then to leave and go out there. And the example I was talking about with in Jamestown, North Dakota, where stock people stocking shelves are able to get thirteen fifty an hour starting. I mean, imagine what slightly more skilled labor would be able to get out of here. And if you have your CDL, you can do very well. And that's not an arduous process to get your CDL. So there are opportunities in other parts of the country that you don't really have necessarily the same access to in these high tax, high cost metro areas. And I think we're going to continue to see this over time. I like living where I live. Um, I like the open space. I like the people. I like the culture more than I think I would like in a large city where I always feel kind of out of place and I feel crowded. And I think other people feel the same way, especially people that came from smaller towns like I did. Uh, maybe if you can't, maybe if you come from a large metropolitan area, you may feel the reverse. You may feel completely at home in that type of area. But I think more of us tend to fall on my side of the spectrum where we like the open space. We, we, we don't want to be cramped. We don't want to pay outlandish fees, you know, out, outlandish rent for an apartment in a crowded city. It's just not for me. And I think not for a lot of my, of my cohorts related to that. And this is a listener request that I discussed this a little bit. So I talked about how I didn't want to live in a big city because of the cost, because I, I don't feel right paying that much money for rent and for living expenses. And I think I can do better working in a smaller city you know, maybe making a little bit less in income, maybe even substantially less in income than I could make in that large city, but also saving significant money on my housing costs and just on all the on the other all the other little costs that add up living in a big city. You know, whether it's parking or paying more for food, paying more for everything because of where you're buying it from. You're not buying it from Walmart or from you know large shopping complexes. You tend to buy it more from bodegas and small, small convenience stores. But I wanted to discuss uh, my eating habits. And that's what uh, this listener wanted me to talk about because they know me personally. And uh, it was something I guess that that they enjoy me talking about. But I only eat one meal a day. And I, I started doing that because I started to feel sluggish in the middle of the day. It was when I was in high school. And when I ate a lunch, when I ate a big lunch, I'd feel sluggish the rest of the day. Like I just wanted to sleep. I would eventually go back and take a nap as soon as I could when I got home, assuming I didn't have after school things going on because I played sports for a majority of the year. Uh, but then if I had sports practice, I would feel you know, sluggish by the time practice came around or you know, if I had a game after school by the time the game came around. And so I started to scale back the lunch that I ate and I'd feel better the rest of the day. I'd be more awake. And then gradually it became where I would just get a drink at lunch. And I've kind of done that ever since. And then I would eat a big dinner at home. I wouldn't 
snack like crazy at least the vast majority of the days. I would just eat that one meal a day. And I also had previously ate breakfast, but I had already stopped eating breakfast. I would just basically wake up, shower, get to school. So I was down to two meals a day prior to then scaling back lunch. Now I've eaten just dinner primarily. Sometimes I'll eat up sometimes I'll eat a meal at lunch, especially sometimes I won't eat dinner or won't eat much at dinner, so I'll have eaten barely anything the previous day. So then maybe I'll eat at lunch because I'm just start I'm just ravenous by that time. But that's been a big part of me being able to to save money. And then also living in a low cost area and just other things that my wife and I have started to do or have agreed to do in order to reach our financial goals because ultimately we want to be able to retire early, uh, hopefully in our 40s. Of course, it's going to depend on whether or not we have kids. We don't have kids. Uh, But that's been one thing that kind of indirectly I've been able to save a lot of money doing and it helped me be able to survive. I talked earlier about struggling to make it you know while I was trying to look for a job just to be able to pay my rent it helped only having to eat one meal a day you can save quite a bit of money doing it that way but more what the listener wanted me to talk about was what my theories were about why it made me feel better doing things that way and why I've adjusted to it so humans I think over time for most of our history that's how we ate we would binge because think about going out and you would say kill a beast, kill a whatever the animal was, depending on what part of the planet you lived on. And you may only kill an animal once every week. And you would feast when you kill it. Because early in our history we probably didn't have a we didn't really have a real way to preserve that meat. So you would have to try to eat as much of it as you could within the first day or two or whatever after having killed whatever you killed and it was difficult to preserve that any longer and so we would be used to at that point not eating all these small meals I know that that's what all the diet people say is that what you should do is eat multiple small meals per day and some of them are five to ten small meals per day you know three isn't enough three larger meals isn't enough apparently and you've got to eat five to ten little meals you know whether it's like a yogurt and a banana and you know at in two hour increments whatever it may be that you want to eat that's what they advocate but I don't think that that's how we how we survived for most of our history so when I've eaten like that and I used to eat like that when I was younger just basically like all day you know whenever I could get my hands on anything I would eat it because you know, I always could eat, and I still always can. It's more a conscious decision most of the time, and now I'm at the point where I don't need it anymore. But that made me feel more sluggish. I think it's because we're not adapted to eating that way. I think we're much more, we evolved much more to eat in larger volumes less often. And I think eating one meal a day, the reason why that's felt more natural for me is I think it's more in line with what we've done for the majority of human history. And that's what I've always said is the reason why I think it works for me and why if more people want to try it, they can. Obviously, you should do whatever you want, whatever makes you feel best. And if 
if I felt worse doing it this way, I wouldn't do it. I would revert back to three meals a day, or maybe I would try the five to 10 small meals per day plan. But I'm committed now at this point, and I'm so used to it that if I eat two decent sized meals in a day, which I, you know, I have done on occasion, depending on what I happen to be doing, I feel stuffed. I feel overfed and I feel sluggish. I feel the same way that I was feeling back then when I started doing it this way. So I don't know if more people will go that way. Probably not. Everybody looks at me like I'm crazy if I say it. You know, a lot of times I'll go out to lunch at work. You know, I work in groups quite a bit of the time. And a lot of times the group will go out to lunch. A lot of times I'll go and I won't get anything or I'll get a Coke or some drink during lunch and won't get any food. And I always get odd looks about and I've got to explain, yeah, I typically only eat dinner over the course of a day. And I do get weird looks and... I'm sure people talk behind my back about me being odd and, you know, why doesn't he eat? Is he anorexic or whatever? Obviously, looking at me, I'm not anorexic. I'm, if anything, overweight. So I don't think anybody could, could, could construe me as being anorexic. And I've been doing it for so long, probably six plus years at this point, uh, that it's just how I eat. That's my eating pattern. Uh, and that's what we do over time is we develop certain patterns and that's how we do things. And that's how I do things for me. And that's what works best for me. Uh, so I think that's, I think that answers the question. I hope at least that the, the listener wanted me to discuss on this podcast. And I wanted to weave it in a little bit to another topic, which is why, uh, when I saw that other article, it made sense to, to, to try to combine the two because this has been part of me being able to save money in addition to living in a lower cost, lower tax area. So I want to thank you for listening. I want to have another episode hopefully before the election. I'm sure new news is going to come out. Actually, I was just reading some of the Podesta emails and it looks like And from what I read, you know, I don't want to buy into conspiracy theories right away, but there is a lot of weird sex type of talk in these emails that were recently released. And I want to do more research before really trying to give you any sort of interpretation from my end, but it doesn't look good. And I talked about it in the previous election or in the, in the previous podcast, how, Obviously, this hurts Hillary Clinton, but really, why does it hurt her? Because it continues to show that she's untrustworthy, and it continues to confirm every suspicion that people had. And I think most people were already sold on her being untrustworthy and on not wanting her to be president of the United States, but this is confirming it for a lot of people. I think a lot of people that begrudgingly went from, say, Bernie Sanders to Hillary Clinton and said, well anything's better than Donald Trump. So I'm going to vote for Hillary instead. I think now they're going to stay home. A lot of them probably won't go over to Trump and go to the polls and and vote for him, but they may vote Jill Stein or may not vote for anybody for president instead of voting for Hillary Clinton. I think that's what's going to happen. But this weird satanic sex ring and with these weird artists 
these things that I'm seeing, it just goes to show, I think, that the elites are so far removed from the rest of us. And that's been an overarching theme of this podcast, how there's a big separation between the political, economic, media elites versus the rest of us, the, their culture versus the rest of our culture. Uh, it's so different and it's so foreign to us that it just it kind of blows my mind and that's the impression i'm getting from reading these emails and i think i i really can't feel any connection to these politicians now but i think a lot of people have thought that they can that they can relate to hillary clinton you know they're trying to push her because she's a woman women should feel connected to her just due to that just due to being the same gender that she is but reading these emails and, and, and seeing all this information that's coming out is there's not similarity there. Your cultures are so different. You, you might as well be from two different worlds. And to to really be enthusiastic about somebody like that representing you. And and Donald Trump is very similar. You know, he's not a he's not a regular person. He's he's part of the elite as well. So I don't mean to not talk about him either. To really think that one of these elites can represent you and can represent us, I think is so far-fetched. And if there's one thing that comes out of this election cycle, I hope it's that. It's more people realizing that, that this system doesn't work because we're vesting our representative power. So we're vesting power that we're giving to this group of elites that doesn't think like us, that doesn't have the same values as us. And, of course, they're going to make decisions that negatively impact our lives. Of course they are. So I hope that's what more and more people realize and what's the ultimate outcome of these stories. Of course, they're interesting to see the, the what scandal is going to be next and all the all the weird things that have come out in this election cycle. It's It's been pretty, pretty wild and, like I said before, entertaining. I think that's one word to describe it but it's not it, it's nothing to be optimistic about you know even if you hate Hillary Clinton all these things coming out about her it, it, it doesn't mean we should be optimistic because it means it may it may swing the the election over to Donald Trump who is deplorable from for our purposes for other reasons you know maybe for slightly different reasons than Hillary Clinton but he, it's not like he is a good option either so hopefully I'll have something out before then. I'm going to dig into into these emails more and hopefully have more of a concrete analysis of, of what's going on on that end. But I appreciate you listening. I try to do these more personal episodes every once in a while if something does come up, but I know that it, it doesn't necessarily tie exactly into the themes of the show. So if you have listened all the way through, I do appreciate it. And uh, I would love your feedback as to whether or not you like hearing about these things, you know, from my personal life, or if you want me to just stick to the political, economic, uh, those types of things. So I appreciate it. Have a fantastic Friday.